You are now listening to the OrthoBullets podcast. This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will be a question session reviewing multiple choice questions related to Marfan syndrome and femoral shaft fractures, which are two topics that we covered this past week on the podcast. So let's get right into it. We'll start with Marfan syndrome, and the first question reads, A defect in the gene coding for fibrillin-1 would lead to which diagnosis? And the choices are 1. Osteogenesis imperfecta, 2. Neurofibromatosis, 3. Achondroplasia, 4. Pseudochondroplasia, and 5. Marfan syndrome. So a defect in fibrillin-1 is the underlying cause of Marfan syndrome, making 5. Marfan syndrome the correct answer to this question. To quickly review, Marfan syndrome is a genetic disorder of connective tissue typically caused by a mutation in the gene coding for the fibrillin-1 protein. Affected patients are typically very tall, with long limbs and thin fingers and toes. Marfan syndrome patients have many common features including ectopic lens, aortic root dilatation, scoliosis, protrusio acetabuli, and ligament dyslaxity. Shirley et al. present a review of Marfan syndrome with emphasis on the musculoskeletal manifestations including ligamentous laxity, protrusio acetabuli, and scoliosis. They note that scoliosis in these patients when compared to those with idiopathic scoliosis commonly progresses faster, is more resistant to bracing, and has a higher association with duralectasia. Dean presents a review of Marfan syndrome and its underlying genetic causes with the mutation in fibrillin. They state that diagnosis can be made using the Ghent nosology, which can diagnose or rule out the condition in 86% of patients. They caution using these criteria in young children as some features of Marfan syndrome may not present until later ages. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1 is incorrect as osteogenesis imperfecta is caused by a defect in the COL1A1 or COL1A2 genes, which code for type 1 collagen. Answer 2 is incorrect as neurofibromatosis is caused by a defect in the NF1 gene, which codes for the neurofibromin protein. Answer 3 is incorrect as achondroplasia is caused by a mutation in fibroblast growth factor receptor 3. And answer 4 is incorrect as pseudochondroplasia is caused by a defect in the cartilage oligomeric matrix protein, or COMP. Moving on to the next question. A tall, thin, 17-year-old basketball player and his parents request an evaluation of his flexible or hypermobile pes planus slash planovalgus foot deformities. As part of his evaluation, the orthopedic surgeon knows pectus excavatum, disproportionately long arms, and scoliosis. In addition to providing treatment of his feet, what test or evaluation should the patient be referred for? And the choices are 1. Cardiovascular evaluation, 2. Ophthalmologic evaluation, 3 MRI of the spine, 4 radiographs of the hip, and 5 genetic testing. So the current diagnostic criteria for Marfan syndrome, called the Ghent criteria, are based on clinical findings and family history. The role of genetic testing in establishing the diagnosis is limited because testing for FBN1 mutations is neither sensitive nor specific for Marfan syndrome. By making the diagnosis and arranging for cardiovascular evaluation, the orthopedic surgeon can help prevent sudden death in these patients. The cardiovascular manifestations including dissection and dilation of the ascending aorta and mitral valve prolapse are responsible for nearly all of the precocious deaths of patients with Marfan syndrome. Patients with Marfan syndrome do have problems with protrusio acetabuli, scoliosis, and ophthalmologic problems, but the life-threatening problem that must be considered is the risk of cardiovascular sudden death.
So again, the correct answer to this question is one, cardiovascular evaluation. Moving on to the next question, which of the following conditions routinely requires early surgical intervention in patients with Marfan syndrome? And the choices are one, kyphosis, two, ankle instability, three, protrusio acetabula, four, progressive scoliosis, and five, pseudoarthrosis of the tibia. So Marfan syndrome is a challenging disease for the orthopedic surgeon. Most problems of joint laxity, acetabular protrusio, and minor scoliosis curves are treated non-surgically. Pseudoarthrosis of the tibia is not seen in Marfan syndrome. It is more common in patients with neurofibromatosis. Treating kyphosis is risky for vertebral subluxation. Rapidly progressive scoliosis in immature patients is associated with higher surgical complications, but surgery is indicated. Overcorrection is associated with significant cardiovascular complications and should be avoided. So the correct answer to this question is four, progressive scoliosis. Moving on to the next question, all of the following are associated with Marfan syndrome except, and the choices are one, duralectasia, two, inferior lens dislocation, three, acetabular protrusio, four, pectus excavatum, and five, dolicostenomalia. So all of the conditions that were listed except for inferior lens dislocation are associated with Marfan syndrome. Inferior lens dislocation is associated with homocystinuria, while superior lens dislocation is associated with Marfan syndrome. Dural ectasia is common in both Marfan syndrome and neurofibromatosis and can complicate spinal instrumentation. Acetabular protrusio, defined by a center edge angle of greater than 40 degrees and medialization of the medial wall of the acetabulum past the ilioischial line or other definitions, and pectus excavatum are known musculoskeletal complications of Marfan syndrome. Dolicostenomelia is the medical condition of elongated limbs like that seen in Marfan syndrome. Sponseller et al. performed a cross-sectional study on a cohort of 173 patients with Marfan syndrome to determine the prevalence and associated functionality of the hip in these patients. While patients with Marfan syndrome and acetabular protrusio have decreased hip range of motion, they are not significantly limited in their function, and as such, the authors do not recommend prophylactic intervention. Moving on to the next question. All the following are true regarding treatment of scoliosis in patients with Marfan syndrome except, and the choices are 1. Bracing is often effective if started early enough. 2. The cardiopulmonary condition of patients with Marfan syndrome should be evaluated and planned for before surgery. 3. Preoperative computed tomograph should be performed to assess bony adequacy for fixation. 4. Preoperative magnetic resonance imaging should be performed to evaluate for duralectasia. And five, there is an increased rate of pseudoarthrosis postoperatively compared to adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. So spinal deformities are common in patients with Marfan syndrome and are usually refractory to conservative management. Jones et al. in 2007 reviewed the treatment updates suggested during the symposium on the treatment of musculoskeletal aspects of Marfan syndrome. Specific to the spine, they review the types of spine deformity, treatment methods, anatomic considerations prior to surgery, for example, duralectasia, and operative complications. Preoperative evaluation of cardiopulmonary condition, bony adequacy, and duralectasia are all indicated. Jones et al. in 2002 reviewed their treatment of 39 patients with Marfan syndrome treated with instrumented spinal fusion for scoliosis or kyphosis. They found increased blood loss, postoperative infection, dural tear, instrumentation fixation failure, pseudoarthrosis, and curve decompensation. 
So the correct answer to this question is one. Bracing is often effective if started early enough is an incorrect statement in this accept question. And the final question for this topic, Marfan syndrome is an autosomal dominant disorder which results from a defective gene encoding 4, and the choices are 1, elastin, 2, fibrillin, 3, fibroblast growth factor receptor 3, 4, collagen type 1, and 5, collagen type 2. So Marfan syndrome is an autosomal dominant connective tissue disorder caused by a mutation in the gene encoding for fibrillin. Fibrillin is a glycoprotein common in many tissues, which is a structural component of elastin-containing microfibrils. Marfan syndrome is characterized by individuals with long, thin limbs, myopia, duralectasia, and ectopia lentis. Associated medical conditions include cardiac abnormalities like mitral valve prolapse and superior lens dislocations. Orthopedic conditions include but are not limited to arachnodactyly, scoliosis, and ligamentous laxity. Sponseller et al. performed a study with the goals of determining the prevalence of current diagnostic findings in Marfan syndrome. They found physical features with the highest diagnostic yield were craniofacial characteristics, thumb and wrist signs, pectus excavatum, and severe hindfoot valgus. They recommend patients with three to four physically evident features or two highly specific features, for example, thumb and wrist signs, craniofacial features, duralectasia, or protrusio, should be carefully re-examined and possibly referred for an echocardiogram or a genetics consultation. Shirley and Sponseller reviewed the diagnosis and treatment of Marfan syndrome. They report, quote, compared to patients with idiopathic scoliosis, patients with Marfan syndrome tend to have scoliosis that progresses at a faster rate and is more resistant to bracing, undergo scoliosis surgery complicated by greater blood loss, pseudoarthrosis, and additional curvature, and have more frequent occurrences of duralectasia, which may cause headaches, leg pain, or perineal pain. And moving on to the final topic for this review session of femoral shaft fractures, the first question reads, A 37-year-old man fell from 24 feet and sustained a subarachnoid hemorrhage and closed femoral shaft fracture. What is most likely to lead to an adverse outcome? And the choices are 1. Intraoperative hypotension 2. Temporizing external fixation 3. Elevated cerebral perfusion pressure 4. Immediate reamed intramedullary nailing and 5. Skeletal traction with intramedullary nailing in 72 hours. So in patients with femoral fractures and associated closed head injuries, there have been conflicting studies regarding timing of fracture care and eventual neurologic outcome. It is known that an episode of hypotension and elevated intracranial pressure will lower the cerebral perfusion pressure, which is known to be detrimental to the neurologic outcome. Intraoperative hypoxia may also worsen the neurologic outcome and increased fluid administration may elevate the intracranial pressure. If early fracture fixation is necessary, the intracranial pressure should be monitored and the cerebral perfusion pressure maintained during the procedure. Immediate reamed intramedullary nailing is appropriate if the patient is hemodynamically stable and the cerebral perfusion pressure is maintained. If not, external fixation would be appropriate treatment. Temporary skeletal traction may be appropriate if the intracranial pressure is labile and precludes the patient from going to the operating room. So the correct answer to this question is 1. Intraoperative hypotension. Moving on to the next question. A starting point entry portal that is too lateral on a trochanteric femoral nail will result in what deforming force? And the choices are 1. Varus, 2. Valgus, 3. Flexion, 4. Extension, and 5. Excessive hoop stress. 
so the trochanteric entry portal for femoral nail insertion is increasingly being used by orthopedic surgeons, both for cephalomedullary implants and standard femoral nailing. In contradistinction to the piriformis fossa, the tip of the trochanter is not collinear to the diaphyseal isthmus, and an errant start can lead to the introduction of malalignment and or iatrogenic comminution at the fracture site. The desired starting point should be at the tip or slightly medial to the tip of the greater trochanter to avoid varus malalignment and blowout of the lateral wall. So the correct answer to this question is 1. Varus. Moving on to the next question. A 41-year-old man is involved in a high-speed motor vehicle crash and sustains a closed femoral midshaft fracture and a unilateral pulmonary contusion with a hemothorax requiring placement of a chest tube. He has an initial blood pressure of 90 over 50 millimeters of mercury. After receiving 2 liters of crystalloid, he has a blood pressure of 115 over 70 and a heart rate of 90 beats per minute. He has normal mentation and does not require ventilator support. An arterial blood gas reveals that his delta base is minus 2 millimoles per liter. What is the most appropriate treatment for his femoral fracture? And the choices are 1. Skeletal traction, 2. Temporizing external fixation, 3. Reamed intramedullary nailing, 4. Unreamed intramedullary nailing, and 5. Open reduction and internal fixation. So the patient responded to crystalloid resuscitation and hemodynamic parameters, and the base deficit indicates that he is adequately resuscitated for definitive fracture care. In a resuscitated patient, a reamed nail is not detrimental in the setting of a pulmonary injury and is favorable for fracture union. An unreamed nail has a higher non-union rate than a reamed nail for femoral fractures. In a skeletally mature patient with a mid-shaft fracture, an intramedullary nail is preferred to open reduction and internal fixation. In an adult patient, skeletal traction should be considered only as a temporary treatment prior to surgical fixation of the femoral fracture. So the correct answer to this question is 3. Reamed intramedullary nailing. Moving on to the next question. A 45-year-old man sustained bilateral femur fractures in a motorcycle accident. On admission to the emergency department, the patient is unconscious with a heart rate of 120 beats per minute and a systolic blood pressure of 80 millimeters of mercury. A chest radiograph reveals bilateral pulmonary contusions. After resuscitation with 2 liters of crystalloid, the patient's heart rate is 115 beats per minute, the systolic blood pressure is 90 millimeters of mercury, and the patient's base deficit is minus 10 millimoles per liter. What is the most appropriate treatment for the femoral fracture at this point? And the choices are 1. External fixation, 2. Percutaneous pinning, 3. Reamed antegrade intramedullary nailing, four reamed retrograde intramedullary nailing, and five unreamed antegrade intramedullary nailing. So the patient is in shock, has pulmonary contusions, and needs further resuscitation. Damage control orthopedics, i.e. external fixation of the femoral fracture, is rapid, safe, and assists in patient resuscitation. Although the patient may ultimately undergo definitive treatment with reamed intramedullary nailing or percutaneous plating, to do so at this time would not further assist resuscitation and may increase pulmonary dysfunction. Unreamed intramedullary nailing is not indicated in this patient. So the correct answer to this question is 1. External fixation. Moving on to the next question. A patient who underwent intramedullary nailing of a femur fracture two weeks ago now reports groin pain. What is the next most appropriate step in management? And the choices are 1. Obtain a radiograph of the hip. 2. Obtain radiographs of the lumbar spine. 3. Obtain an MRI scan of the lumbar spine. 4. Review the radiographic report from the time of injury. 
and five, reassure the patient that the pain will improve and order physical therapy. So whereas ipsilateral fractures of the femoral neck and shaft are uncommon, it is critical to recognize a femoral neck fracture which may occur in conjunction with the femoral shaft fracture. The combined injury is seen in 2% to 9% of femoral shaft fractures and may initially be missed in as many as one-third of the cases. Preoperative examination of a thin-cut CT scan and dedicated AP internal rotation views of the femoral neck can help identify this injury. In addition, the intraoperative AP and lateral hip fluoroscopic view should be examined and a dedicated radiograph of the hip obtained at the conclusion of the surgery. At follow-up, Tornetta and Associates has recommended obtaining a dedicated AP radiograph of the hip with the leg internally rotated 15 to 20 degrees. Because the femoral neck is antiverted, 15 to 20 degrees of internal rotation of the hip offers the best view of the femoral neck. Whereas associated lumbar spine pathology may cause groin pain, the presence of a missed femoral neck fracture must first be ruled out prior to investigating other sources of pain. So the correct answer to this question is 1. Obtain a radiograph of the hip. Moving on to the next question. A 20-year-old unrestrained driver sustained a mid-shaft femur fracture in a high-speed motor vehicle accident. The femoral neck was evaluated with a CT scan with 2mm cuts through the hip. No fracture was identified. What additional studies, if any, should be performed to minimize the risk of having an undiagnosed femoral neck fracture? And the choices are 1. Postoperative MRI scan. 2. Postoperative bone scan. 3. Preoperative AP pelvic radiograph. 4. No additional imaging studies are needed and five intraoperative fluoroscopic images of the femoral neck. So non-displaced femoral neck fractures may occur concurrently with high-energy injuries of the femur. Preferably, these are identified prior to or during surgery so that the fracture can be stabilized to prevent displacement and minimize the risk of osteonecrosis. However, the diagnosis of these injuries can be difficult. Tornetta and Associates reported on standardized protocols that involve preoperative radiographs and CT scans with fine cuts through the femoral head. This protocol improved the detection of femoral neck fractures compared with situations with no set protocol. Of the 16 fractures detected, 13 were identified preoperatively. Of the three fractures that were missed by the screening, one was iatrogenic, one was detected at the time of surgery with intraoperative internal-slash-external views of the femoral neck, and one had a late displacement. The overall rate of non-displaced femoral neck fractures in this study was 7.5%, of which 91% were treated at the time of initial surgery, having been identified on preoperative and or intraoperative radiographs. Care must be taken not to neglect careful scrutiny of the femoral neck at the time of surgery, even if preoperative imaging studies do not detect a fracture. No one method has been shown to have 100% success rate. Postoperative bone scans and MRI scans are not routinely used. So the correct answer to this question is 5. Intraoperative fluoroscopic images of the femoral neck. Moving on to the next question, what is the proper location for a trochanteric nail starting point? And the choices are 1. At the tip of the greater trochanter, 2. Just medial to the tip of the trochanter, 3. Just lateral to the tip of the trochanter, 4. Dependent on the position and obliquity of the fracture, and 5. Dependent on the relative position of the trochanter to the axis of the femoral shaft. So contrary to popular belief, the tip of the greater trochanter is not necessarily the proper starting location for insertion of a trochanteric femoral nail. The relative position of the tip of the trochanter and the long axis of the femoral canal varies substantially between patients. 
Also, the proximal lateral bend varies substantially between different nails. Therefore, the relative position of the trochanter to the axis of the femoral shaft and the particular geometry of the selected nail must be considered. So the correct answer to this question is 5, dependent on the relative position of the trochanter to the axis of the femoral shaft. Moving on to the next question, a comminuted femoral shaft fracture is treated with an intramedullary nail locked with a single distal screw. What is the most likely mode of failure of the screw? And the choices are 1. Screw pulls out of the cortical shaft. 2. Screw head breaks off due to bending stresses. 3. Shaft of the screw fractures in the region that is inside the nail. 4. Screw threads are damaged by fretting against the edges of the holes in the nail. And 5. Screw bends excessively. So the screw is being loaded and pushed distally at the two points where it contacts the walls of the nail, and it is being pushed proximally at the two points where it contacts the cortex, i.e. near the head and tip of the screw. This places the screw in four-point bending, producing tensile stresses on the inferior side of the screw and compressive stresses on the superior side. The tensile stresses, combined with stress risers at the screw threads, eventually could lead to fatigue fracture of the screw. Because the cortices in the metaphysis are far apart, the bending moment is large and therefore stresses near the mid-shaft of the screw produced by bending are much larger than shear stresses in this case. Pull-out of the screw is unlikely because the loads are not directed along the axis of the screw. There are no bending stresses at the ends of the screw. A bent screw may be difficult to remove, but this would not likely cause failure of the fixation. So the correct answer to this question is 3. Shaft of the screw fractures in the region that is inside the nail. Moving on to the next question. Which of the following studies best increases the ability to diagnose femoral neck fractures in patients with femoral shaft fractures? And the choices are 1. MRI, 2. Fine cut CT scan, 3. Bone scan, 4. AP radiograph of the femur, and 5. AP radiograph of the pelvis. So Tornetta and Associates and Yang and Associates found that nearly half of all femoral neck fractures associated with femoral shaft fractures were being missed at their institution. On the basis of the delayed diagnosis of these injuries, a best practice protocol was developed by the attending trauma surgeons for the evaluation of the femoral neck in patients with a femoral shaft fracture. This protocol includes a preoperative AP internal rotation radiograph of the hip, a fine 2mm cut CT scan through the femoral neck as part of the initial trauma scan, and an intraoperative fluoroscopic lateral evaluation of the hip just prior to fixation of the femoral shaft. In addition, postoperative AP and lateral radiographs of the hip are made in the operating room to specifically evaluate the femoral neck before the patient is awakened. They found that 2mm fine-cut CT was the best screening tool in this group of patients, and it identified 12 of the 13 fractures, whereas 8 of the 13 fractures were visible on the dedicated preoperative AP internal rotation hip radiographs. So the correct answer to this question is 2, fine-cut CT scan. Moving on to the next question, which of the following long bone fracture patterns occurs after a pure bending force is exerted to the bone? And the choices are 1, spiral, 2 oblique, 3 transverse, 4 segmental, and 5 comminuted. So a pure bending force produces a transverse fracture pattern. Spiral fractures are mainly rotational, oblique are uneven bending, segmental are four-point bending, and comminuted are either a high-speed torsion or crush mechanism. So the correct answer to this question asking which long bone fracture pattern occurs after a pure bending force is exerted to the bone, the correct answer is 3 transverse.
And moving on to the final question for this topic, an otherwise healthy 25-year-old man with an isolated closed mid-diaphyseal femoral fracture undergoes intramedullary nailing. Compared with non-reamed nailing, reamed femoral nailing is associated with a higher rate of, and the choices are 1. Union, 2. Symptomatic pulmonary complications, 3. Infection, 4. Transfusion requirements, and 5. Required secondary procedures. So Bendari and Associates, in a meta-analysis, concluded that sufficient evidence exists to suggest that reamed intramedullary nailing of lower extremity long bone fractures significantly reduces rates of non-union and implant failure in comparison with non-reamed nailing. Tornetta and Taburzi, in a prospective randomized study, determined that reamed canal preparation led to faster healing of distal fractures treated with statically locked intramedullary nails. Blood loss was greater in the reamed group, but this did not translate into increased transfusion requirements. In this series, there was no advantage to nail insertion without reaming. In a prospective randomized multicenter study, the overall incidence of acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS, was found to be low with primary stabilization of femoral shaft fractures with intramedullary nailing. There was no difference in the incidence of ARDS between the reamed and unreamed groups. In a retrospective study performed by Handelin and Associates, intramedullary nailing of long bone fractures in patients with multiple injuries and with a coexisting pulmonary contusion did not impair pulmonary function or outcome. No study has convincingly demonstrated an increased trend towards infection with reamed femoral intramedullary nailing. So the correct answer to this question asking compared with non-reamed nailing, reamed femoral nailing is associated with a higher rate of, the answer is one, union. That's all for this question review session about Marfan syndrome and femoral shaft fractures. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.